Well, Ben and Beth had been married for 15 years, but Ben's heart wasn't in it anymore. And he hadn't even noticed. Oh, it was at first. When he first met Beth, he was head over heels. He couldn't stop thinking about her. And all he only ever wanted to do was spend time with her and make her happy. And he had been a good husband since. Uh, he had read the Bible with her. He regularly bought her gifts. He worked hard to earn enough to bless her and the kids when they came along. And he was involved in their lives. You know, when Beth or the kids were in the room, he was never even on his phone. That's how much he loved them. He was a good man with good principles. But somewhere along the way, his love leaked to near empty. And Beth's revelation of this was a shock to him. Something's not right, Ben, she said. You're doing the same things you've been doing for years. Uh, good things, caring things. But your heart's not in it anymore. And if you don't do something about it, I'm afraid we're only one step away from having no marriage at all. Now we understand her thinking, don't we? We understand the problem. I mean, loveless devotion is no devotion at all. It's duty and mere duty is dangerous in relationships. And it's just as dangerous when it happens to churches. I mean, we can do all the things we do out of duty and not love. And loveless duty leaves a church just one step away from being no church at all. It won't matter how big and busy that church is. It won't matter that they have hundreds in their membership, three services on a Sunday, top-notch Sunday school, 78% of members in small groups, solid preaching, cracking musicians, people coming to Christ, you know, a couple of thousand watching your services online during lockdown, but Jesus can still come and say to churches like that, you need to repent. And if you don't, then one day soon you'll be no church of mine. It's really striking, isn't it? But surely not surprising to us. Surely not surprising when we recall that the great commandment actually matters to Jesus, who himself loved us and gave himself for us. Well, I want to walk through Revelation 2, 1 to 7 and see Jesus' assessment of this church and see what he calls it to do. We see him do two things in this passage. One, Jesus assesses their ministry. That's verses 1 to 4. And of course, no one's better placed to do so. Verse 1 remind us, reminds us that he controls and knows his churches. The rest of the New Testament tells us he's entitled to. He bought this church with his blood and he rules this church as its head. So what's Jesus' assessment of this church in Ephesus? Well, three things. One, this church loves doing good. Jesus says so in verse two. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Now, what comes to your mind when you think uh, about good deeds? I'm guessing it's probably something practical. Shopping for an elderly neighbor, or uh, giving a friend a lift to the hospital. But the deeds that Jesus identifies here are gospel-related deeds, gospel-related activities, deeds that point to him. Now, so the, that shows us the church in Ephesus is commended by him for doing gospel ministry. But the quality of that ministry is also commended. Uh, they're hard at work. 
they've got their sleeves rolled up and their feet dirty. And words like perseverance, endurance, and not growing weary tell us that they're not only hard at work, they're also hard to stop. And verse 3 tells us why. This is part of their motivation. They were doing it for Jesus' name, for his name. That's what it says in verse 3. So here's a church that loves doing good and even does it in a sense in Jesus' name. But secondly, this church loves sound teaching. Now we know that because Jesus commends them for that, for hating false teaching in verse 2. I know, he says, that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now to be this good, at spotting and assessing false teachers and false teaching, you have to be well taught. You have to love sound doctrine. Now when you're well taught, you I guess you could say you grow theological antennae that twitch at the slightest sound of error. And when you're well taught, you then recognise the danger of false teaching, the danger that it poses to your spiritual health, the danger that it poses to the gospel, and that's why well-taught believers are intolerant of it. Now, Ephesus was super sharp theologically, a solid conservative church. That shouldn't surprise us, really, given the pastors this church enjoyed in its time. I mean, during their 40-year history to this point, I mean, they had enjoyed such pastors that hanging on the wall of their vestry were photos of Paul, Apollos, Timothy and John himself. Men who said, I have not hesitated to teach you the whole counsel of God. Or, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Or, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Well, that's what this church did. And Jesus commended them for that. They loved doing good and they loved sound teaching. I mean, it sounds like a great church. It sounds like the kind of church that we would want to go to, doesn't it? And yet it's this close to being snuffed out. Why, thirdly, this church doesn't love Jesus. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Their heart just wasn't in it anymore. And they hadn't even noticed Oh, they used to love Jesus. They were like newlyweds when they first believed. You can read about that in Acts 19 for when the church started. Their feelings were strong, but here they are accused of forsaking love for Christ. Now, that's a very important word, even to dwell on for a second. We shouldn't rush by it. What Jesus is saying here is you have forsaken the love you had at first. When he says that, he is laying the blame on them. He's not saying it's not their fault, it is. They haven't passively lost their first love, they've actively left it. They're not apostate backsliders, they're still doing ministry, remember? But they're and still committed to sound teaching. No, Jesus is saying, you have abandoned it. So how did it happen? Well, like it's not hard to guess, really. In some small or significant ways, we've all deliberately forsaken love for Christ by being inattentive to our relationship with him. It's so easy just to, I guess, go through the motions. 
It's easy to make church or faith about you, about something else you enjoy about being a Christian or being a part of a church family, you know, the community aspect of it or something like that. And it's really dangerously easy to displace the main thing and replace it with a secondary thing. It's all so subtle. It's hardly noticeable to us at, at times. But I guess it's the difference between saying something like, wasn't that a great sermon? And don't we have a great saviour? It's the difference between going to a growth group or a small group because you love the companionship and going to a growth group because you know that this is crucial to the way that God wants you to grow and help others grow in Christ-likeness. There's a difference. Well, if we do it in an inattentive way or a careless way, it's a serious threat to a church's health and existence. If we displace the main thing, we might as well stop. When asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied with words that put the main thing in bold italics, underlined and stoned. Love the Lord your God, he said, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. First in terms of priority, greatest in terms of value. Now, what about us, church family? Have we forsaken love for Christ? It's an important question to ask. I mean, we love doing good. We're busy doing gospel-related activities. We've got a passion for the lost. We, though I dare say we could take it up a level. Uh, we are reaching out as individuals and we're planting churches as a church, sending out missionaries. I, I love all these things. And secondly, we don't only love... Uh, we, we love doing good. We love sound teaching. We place a high value on Bible teaching in our church family. And that's a good thing and something that we should not ever take for granted, though I dare say we could even take that up a level. But what about this third thing? What about love for Christ? Is he first in our hearts? Or do we love church and the idea of church more than we love the Lord of the church? Uh, do we love singing songs about Jesus with others when we gather, when we can, more than we love Jesus, the subject of those songs? You know, if we have 28 ministries serving us in the city but have not loved, we're merely clanging cymbals or resounding gongs. If we preach 10 out of 10 sermons and practice 10 out of 10 listening, but our hearts are not moved with affection and deep, deep love for Jesus, we are nothing. We've missed the point. Now Jesus' eyes are on us and one of the ways he loves us is to point out where we're going wrong. And what should we do then if we realise that we are? Well simply, do as Jesus commands. And this is the second thing we see. Jesus commands repentance. Now this church needs to change. And Jesus tells them to do three things that will help them do that. Remember, repent, and redo. First of all, remember. Look with me at verse five. Consider how far you have fallen. Think back to when you first believed and compare that with what you're like today. Self-assess. What do you notice, Ephesus? 
Back then, your love for Jesus was super strong. The gospel gripped your heart and moved your heart and moved you to action in response to it. You couldn't get enough of God's word. You wouldn't be put off from praying by anything. Holiness mattered to you. Putting sin to death mattered to you. And you talked about Jesus excitedly with your friends and family, unashamedly so. But what's it like now? Well, it's grown cold, Ephesus. It's grown cold. We, what about us? Can we do the same comparison? Compare our love for Jesus today with what it was when we first believed. What do we notice? Compare our life and ministry and heartbeat as a church today. What is it like compared to what it was? If it's colder or falling, we must do the second thing that Jesus commands. Repent. Verse 5. Turn in sorrow over sin, away from whatever we've set our hearts on, and redirect that love on Christ first. What a gracious command. I mean, the call to repent here communicates on the one hand the seriousness of the sin. It's change, don't do nothing. And on the other hand, the love of Christ is willing as always to forgive. Repent. Remember, repent. Third thing, redo. Verse 5. Do the things you did at first. Rekindle your love for Jesus by returning to the things you did at first when you were on fire from him. Do whatever it takes to add fuel to the fire in your devotion to Christ. Whatever it was, do it and do it more. Remember, repent and redo. This is the command of Christ to churches whose love has grown cold. And this church not only needs to change, this church then faces a choice. It's either or. And the consequences of either or options are plain. If they don't repent, they face the withdrawal of the presence of Christ from their church. We see that in the second half of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow, that's that's strong, isn't it? What a warning that is. I mean, Jesus, who plans to spread his glory by saving souls across the world and gathering them into local churches, is willing to close churches. That's astonishing. He visits unrepentant, loveless churches with poor and wrong priorities. He visits them with judgment and no longer considers them a church. And this nation has seen this happen, of course, way too often. And even though across our city and across our nation, Sunday by Sunday, people routinely gather together, call themselves a church and do the things that churches might do. They are not churches because they have displaced the main thing and replaced it with a secondary thing. But let us not speak proudly or in a puffed up way thinking that our ministry activity or our theological solidity makes us any better. I mean, if Ephesus could fall, Charlotte Chapel and churches like her could fall. So if they don't repent, removal of presence. But secondly, the other option, if they do repent, they can look forward to enjoying that presence that they enjoy now forever. Verse 7, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. No one has eaten of that tree since the fall, since the time when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden for their sin. 
but those who are victorious in this fight against a heartless, loveless faith. Those who hear Christ's assessment and heed Christ's call to repent, who with God's help love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul, with all their mind and strength, and are sorry for the times when they don't, will eat of this fruit in the future, in the new heaven and new earth, in God's presence forever, when there will be no lacklustre love, just full love. That's the prize for those Jesus calls victorious. And do you know how that's even possible? Do you know why God will still grant such privileges to churches and believers, even like us who have got church and ministry and the practice of faith so wrong? It's all down to his own victory, the one who's doing the assessing, Jesus Christ. Our victory is all wrapped up in his. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all the sins of those who would repent in faith, believing in his promise of forgiveness in a future. And if you haven't, believe in the Lord Jesus and you can enjoy this too. Salvation, not judgment. And it's this salvation that makes us love him more. That's the love that compels us to hear this assessment and to heed his command. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for sinful self-love, for disordered affections, for doing that as a church, for displacing at times Christ from the centre and replacing him with something of less value and worth. Whatever it takes, Lord, increase our capacity to love and correct the direction of our love so that we love you most, that we love you first and may more know of your love as a result of your work in us today as you've shown us these things today and commanded these things today this we pray in jesus name amen